0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back for another week of Ranching Reboot. This episode has been sponsored by our generous patrons over on patreon.com forward slash Redhills Rancher. If you'd like to support the show, check the show notes for a link directly to Patreon. We're gonna try something a little bit different this week. After episode 71 came out, my friend and previous guest Hobbs Magare, wanted to talk a little more with Victoria Alexander. So I reached out, found a time and place that we could all get together on Zoom. I got him talking and I just pressed record. It didn't take me very long to realize that I was out of my depth. So I just did what came natural, and I sat back and let the two smart people in the room have a conversation.
1: There's actually actually one shining moment in your podcast it was actually kind of just a side note that just like screamed out to me that was fascinating and i wanted to give you tori the opportunity to expand on it a little bit is when you said in passing about your hamlet road construction people you said i don't mind a little corruption and i thought that that was really fascinating especially in light of your trying to examine the balance between a highly centralized and regulated um, economic system and a Darwinian economic system. Because if you have a regulated economic system, and then that Darwinian economic system kind of pokes out as a little bit of corruption, then you have kind of almost a healthy interplay between the two. And it seems like that might actually be a little bit more effective over the long-term than so. Yeah.
2: My, yeah, my motto has been, when I run for office, uh, decentralize the power. And you're never going to get rid of uh, corruption. You know, uh, lobbying can't be made illegal because citizens have to lobby their <laughs> representatives. Um, so there is always going to be corruption. I would rather have it at the local level Uh, There's no way that we citizens at the local level can do anything about federal level corruption, no way. Um, We can't vote ourselves out of that problem. Um, State level, it's also pretty hard, but if there were a lot of decisions being made about budgets and how infrastructure is going to be built, if if those decisions were made at the local level where it's being built, um, you could keep an eye on it a lot better um but there will be you know i don't like corruption (laughs) but it will be there (laughs) so we have to kind of learn to live with it and um try to minimize it as best we can
1: so yeah i mean is it really that i mean when you're minimizing it that that creates i mean it's almost like if you look at it from the perspective of you have the the more liberal and the more traditional conservative types and the interplay between them is what kind of regulates us moving forward through time in society and I think between regulation and corruption the interplay between those two is actually sort of an interesting little uh interplay where whereby things can get done because obviously corruption is the 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 identification and deployment of resources in in one's own favor or the favor of your in group right versus regulation, which is ostensibly for the entire in the entirety of society, so those two kind of rubbing against each other moving forward through time. uh, create, you know, has, I think, has the capacity to create better outcomes than just a hard, hardcore regulated system or a hardcore corrupt system.
2: I know that, um, you know, when you have regulation that you can't uh, throw any of the projects to your in-group. Um, this does create a problem because um, people who can organize things well know a lot of people and have an in-group that's very competent. So, uh, you know, when you have these uh, regulations that don't look at the context, um, they, they may regulate out the, the better options because they would be, they would look like corruption somehow. I know working in the nonprofit world, in the art world, um, it was all in group, everything. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, friends would get grants, uh, friends would get the shows. um, But they were, you know, we surrounded ourselves with really talented, smart people. So, um, you know, so if you have some sort of regulation that you have to, you know, meet these, these numbers, you know, so many people from this, or there's, you know, some sort of category, you can't get this, contract unless you have X, Y, and Z, well, maybe X, Y, and Z is not the best thing the most. Um, so, so yeah, you know, what we call corruption m- might just be, um, you know, better planning at some level. So, you know, the regulations that are in, in the paper that you may have read, the um, free range humans, um, I, I talk a lot about, you know, uh, regulations you know, they, they're necessary to try to equalize everything and take the subjectivity out of, uh, out of laws um, and try to treat all people equally. Um, but when they're applied too heavy-handedly, it becomes like golem. There's this, I just got back from the Czech Republic in Prague. There's this legend of this um, uh, humanoid type, Creature made out of clay who uh, um, applies the law too literally over and over again. Of course, that ends up harming the very people he's supposed to protect. And so, we've always known that the letter of the law can sometimes be more damaging than you know. Going well, you know, we'll you know have a little work around here.
1: And that's um, a, and, and that's a form of intelligence in itself, right? The, the, the interplay between those, between those, 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 and the, the notion of decentralized intelligence, I think is, is the notion of decentralized intelligence and how you get from a centralized organize, organizational intelligence that is really, um, energy heavy and then top down. Right. Top down and then a collapse of that. And then a sort of. Rising up of a sort of spontaneous, decentralized intelligence um, is, is definitely one of the more fascinating aspects that, that, I, that I'd love to hear you uh, talk about and, and potentially kind of roadmap how you see those things happening. Say, we're here right now. We have a top-down, almost tyrannical system. It's very energy-heavy, very entropy-heavy. And it is sort of by definition going to have to collapse. Now, it can't, have you kind of roadmapped out from from here to there as you kind of trying to write the end of your 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 uh, your, your next story, as it were?
2: Yeah, uh, I, yeah. I guess I talked about that. How I'm I'm trying to write a, a happy ending to to uh, Orwell's novel 1984, so it doesn't end so tragically. Um, no, I guess not, not a roadmap. I mean, I, I wish I could, but maybe we can't, maybe it's just impossible because there's something about self-organizing political systems that you have to be ready at the, at the opportune moment. And so what we're all doing is preparing ourselves for that moment, everybody. I mean, not everyone's talking about the same thing, how we, we all need to be a lot more self-sufficient. We all know that we need uh, some sort of sovereign currency, you know, get rid of the central banking, that's very important, um, how we need to make more political decisions locally, uh, you know, everyone's saying the same thing. So when the moment happens, when the collapse comes, because it's coming, um, hopefully, <laughs> some of us will just take charge of, you know, there's there's no, there's no, uh, uh, supply chain running anymore. Um, there's no way to deliver any goods. Well, there's plenty of competent people who now occupy nodes in that supply chain that are taking orders or uh, from other people or who are, uh, you know, working for larger corporations. Um, hopefully, they'll they'll take control of their local situation.
1: I've always I've always thought um, my my comment has always sort of been. I don't vote. I just keep my, I just make sure I have my notes ready, you know? <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah. I mean, as far as roadmap, I think there are some of the things that we all need to start saying now um, in order to help other people know where to go. And and one of them is in the face of the climate change issues and what we're all supposed to be doing now for climate change you know cutting back on agriculture as in uh, in the Netherlands and Sri Lanka we need to come back with no you need to cut back on wars <laughs> you know you fix the problems that you're creating before you come to farmers to ask us to make sacrifices You know, stop sending weapons to Ukraine and and just, you know, making this war drag on. Russia's already won. Um, uh, You know, call home all our soldiers from, you know, the how many? 180 military bases that we know of.
0: Um, Uh, Probably 185 because there's probably one in every country, more than one in every country.
2: uh Yeah. the ones we know about Those right you know about um, i think
1: that uh, I, I think you know certainly to some degree as we were mentioning earlier peter zehan's uh, uh analysis is very much that that we are going to whether we like it or not pull back simply because it doesn't serve us strategically anymore to really be that involved in the in the eastern hemisphere um the his you know the the notion that we um we set up the deal, the, the sort of trade, the, org, the trade order after World War II, because we didn't have enough people to occupy all those countries that we were now the boss of. You know? So effectively, we we're, we're like, you know what? Well, how about we just make it where everybody can grow their economy and then uh, you guys be on our side? So the, that once the, once the Iron Curtain fell in the early 90s, know we've been running for 30 years on the fumes of that order that doesn't even really serve us anymore um according to his analysis so i think that i think very well those wars may come to an end of their own they may collapse under their own weight um but i think i think they're going to collapse under their own weight before somebody at the top of the food chain who is funded by the military industrial complex makes a a deliberate decision to end them. So I think that I think that's sort of intelligence manifesting itself in, in a way. Um, Brian, do you have any thoughts on that?
0: Continuing wars is good for business. Ending them is not.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I.
2: I I worry about. Um... Mm, analyzing things according to what would make sense um, you, you know that they, they can't continue to do this because they don't have the money for it or it'll t- totally collapse our economy i'm sorry i used the word they you know that's very vague and everything but <laughs> um it, because that you know these these terrible outcomes that we're talking about and that we're afraid of and seem so ridiculous um it, it may be that that is the goal. Um, because there's nothing like being able to control a population if you have a total collapse. Um, and then you can have martial law, you can issue rations, you can confiscate land, uh, you can acquire land, And all these people with paper assets that aren't worth anything are going to want the real assets of land and homes and property and so forth. So whenever it, it looks like oh you know that it just they won't be able to make any money if they keep doing it this way they um they don't they have all the money they could ever want they can just make it and they've, <laughs> they've been creating it electronically what they want is our land
1: yeah well that uh, luckily uh, as mao said we can never invade the u.s mainland because there's a gun behind every blade of grass so i think that uh, may f- factor into the calculus of of why they haven't yet and certainly why they are doing everything they can to uh, push that tide in the other direction
0: you know i i've given some thought about you know the fall of the current order the period of disorder before a new order rises and how do we start talking about what what we're going to build back better ah oh, god i wish i hadn't had just said that <laughs> terrible phrase i apologize for that sorry everybody but what are we going to build back that's going to work that's going to be less corruption prone in the long term i suppose it's going to more be decentralized to bottom up serve the needs of the people i guess is is the question
1: well it's much easier to root out a psychopath in a small community right than it is to uh root one out in a in a big city in a globalized system and i think that's just sort of a a metaphor for the ability to have uh greater concern with the intimate details of one's surroundings if by definition it builds back and we don't have access to the same amount of inputs and fuels and resources that we had before it would there it would by virtue or by definition have to be more decentralized and if it is in fact, more decentralized, then we have a, a greater network of feedback loops to be able to influence that our, our local nodes in the system.
2: I think it is important to talk about the mechanisms that are in place now that we're all, um, you know, uh, so so used to we don't question them that um, that that. Concentrate power and those things are creation of currency who gets to create currency and how Um, taxing. um, Regulation um, issuing of patents and licenses all those things that the all those. um, Duties that the government has acquired over time and didn't initially have Uh, so. The, this the, to start off with, I think that money is the most important thing, and I think that uh, uh, what what we would have to do locally is have local fiat currencies, um, and any any uh, any le- any government entity that can uh, that. Uh, taxes the population could make a a local currency by issuing credits that that anybody who gets the credit could then use to pay their taxes so this credit would have value in that local community and only in that local community so let's say you pay your uh, city workers with the the tax credits they could then spend them in the local farmers market and people would want to have them because they have to pay their taxes so if a, you know, if a city is going completely bankrupt and can't afford to run any of its operations anymore, it could do that in order to survive. And then you have this local currency in play. And the next thing you wanna do is get rid of taxing. <laughs> um, so I, I mentioned this in the paper that I wrote, um, you know, everybody hates the idea of fiat Currency because it it allows the people who have control of creating new money to create it whenever they want to and to give it to whomever they want to, and right now we have that with the Federal Reserve banking system is they just create money and then loan it out to their cronies very cheap and they loan it out to everybody else at high interest. Uh, The Federal Reserve Banks loan it to governments for um, public infrastructure uh, projects at at pretty high interest. Um, Oddly enough, the the governments are putting their money in bank accounts, in Federal Reserve Bank accounts, and then those banks loan it back their own money at interest. (laughs) You know, so
0: sounds like a hell of a good scam.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, that the, I've been involved with a public banking institute that's saying, hey, you know, all all governments should put their money in their own banks, and then use their own money for their infrastructure projects so that they don't have to borrow from the Federal Reserve banks who have their money. <laughs> you know, you know, stupid stuff like this goes on all the time. Um, so. If a government can just create, so you don't have any more people creating money to loan it out, because that creates the boom and bust cycle. Um, you know, there's cheap, free, cheap money to, um, to borrow um, at low interest rates. So you have this incredible growth period. Lots of things get built, and then too many things have been built, and now there's a bust period, and, you know, that, that happens continually. And that that will always happen as long as you are creating money as debt, backed by debt.
1: What's the right size for a a an administrative region to create that? Because certainly, you know, we need resources from larger and from fields afar in order to you know maintain the the basic semblance of life as we as we know it um, to some degree, and and. And unless we want to go back completely to using um, human excrement as, as fertilizer we're going to have to create some sort of trade um, trade agreement and so with so what is the right is it like state size I mean because local seems a little bit too small for me in order to work as a as a, uh, as, a as, as a credit system
2: as a currency yeah um, I look at the local currency just as an emergency measure to be taken Um if and when there's a a collapse before before the larger, you know, the before the country can get back on its feet again, you know, just to keep people from starving and to keep the the lights on and the city functioning.
1: Okay, that's cool. That's good. So
0: that would that would happen in case of federal federal collapse and dysfunction, but your local and city governments might still be creaking along attempting to do business and maintain services.
2: you want them you want the local governments to take the lead in, in holding everything together which is kind of what happened in the Soviet Union when, when the Soviet Union fell um, so yeah as far as as trade I, I tend to think very um, myopically at look just looking at the United States and not in terms of trading partners I think I'm I'm not as good um, about thinking of our relationship with the rest of the world. I have this kind of tendency to want to uh, you know come on just stop all the global trade and we can do this we've got resources and so that's one area that I have a bit of a blind sight that I know I need to to work on but um,
1: well, I'm in agreement with you. I think that actually, that, that particularly the next century, the, the farthest we're really even going to get anything from at all is probably South America. And I think I think North uh, North America is going to be largely self-contained, um, and so so when I'm talking about what is the right size administrative region to issue some sort of credit. You know, I'm thinking that the the exchange is only going to really go as far as primarily Mexico or Canada or whatever they call themselves at that time at that point. Well, and then occasionally South America. And I don't know. I don't know how that would work. But but yeah, I'm in agreement with you. I think that uh, the as the world has gotten bigger, we have certainly become uh, more. Uh, as you you mentioned in the last podcast, everything has become more homogeneous and watered down. And we've been sort of turned into techno industrial uh, tools. Um, And so, you know, a collapse of the the techno industrial system is, um, I think, a great outcome. I think, obviously, there is going to be massive death, destruction and famine in in the process. Um, But, but, you know, yeah, you can't can't make a omelet without breaking a few eggs. I suppose.
2: Yeah, you know it's the careful what you wish for. I mean, I've I've been wanting this this horrible, you know, um, completely, you know, stupidly designed system to collapse, but and now that it's happening, a lot of people are going to suffer.
1: Yeah, I think uh, bringing back Zihan's uh, analysis uh, based on based on his analysis guaranteed. Uh, an increase in one billion in in chronic malnutrition, guaranteed one billion dead. And if and if and if China can't figure out a way to grow rice without um, without uh, chemical inputs, then that raises it to two billion dead. Uh, so I think that it's it's going to be brutal. And I think certainly um, facing our own death is is I think an important part of 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 facing this this coming. Uh, uh, shift. And I think that ties back actually to what you were talking about in the podcast about your sheep's self-awareness. I, mean, I think, um, uh, I think one of the things that I definitely practice daily is, um, dying. And I think it's, I think that's probably one, I think, I think that's really one of the things that, that religion and some form of spirituality, uh, has a, has a benefit for is that it gives us some sort of, um, Solace in the uh, the snuffing out of our own our own individual light, and so that we can not get too much anxiety about that as this as this coming shift uh, begins to materialize.
2: Um, We have to be careful about that that willingness to sacrifice the individual for the you know to see the the greater good go on. Um, you know, there are, or just accept that that that's going to happen, but the human race will continue and there are a lot of people, a lot of individuals will die, but the human race will continue. Um, you know, they are, are really trying to make use of that right now and, and getting people to think of themselves as, as being expendable for the whole and to sort of get used to the idea that we're just going to have to, you know, cut back on our population and a lot of people are going to have to die. I don't want to get too comfortable with that. I I, uh, I hope, <laughs> I, I, you know, I would like to see the population, you know, stop increasing so quickly and, you know, to, to have that S curve kind of top out a little bit and then, you know, maintain itself. I, I don't want to see it. <laughs> I, I hope somehow we can avoid that. I, I don't think that seven, eight, nine billion people is is too many for the planet i think that 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 possibly we could we could manage um
1: i don't think it's mutually exclusive certainly to to i when i when i talk about being comfortable with one's own death i I don't think that that really uh, translates in my mind to being comfortable with the death of others i mean certainly i want to work to alleviate as much suffering for the for the greater good as as possible, and to create systems that are iterative and infinitely repeatable over as much as that will benefit as many people as possible over the longest time horizon. I'm simply referring to a, a, a salve for our own anxiety um, where but you know, certainly I do. I do understand your point that um, it, it does not um, it does not bode well for the future of humanity to view ourselves as the borg you know <laughs>
2: yeah and and i think your goodness and and can be uh, co-opted by people in power cuz we're you know we can say you know we can be come come to terms with our own mortality um but there are people who will uh, take advantage of that and say oh you you've come it's- to terms with <laughs> Here
1: you go. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it's, I don't, I don't, certainly don't mean give up your own sovereignty in, in 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 that that regard. What's an example of of how um uh how that can be co opted?
2: Oh, by don't have as many children, don't have any children, um, you know, something like that.
1: I couldn't agree. I you know, couldn't agree of more are with that.
2: Choosing choosing that.
1: But then,
0: when you start telling yeah. people how many kids they should and shouldn't yeah. have, then you end up with an inverted. Uh, demographic,
2: mm-hmm. yeah, demographic yeah. demographic graph
0: yeah. like china has and they're facing you know where all of their workers are
1: yeah.
0: within retire or at retirement age or age in the, the uh, workforce
1: in beijing and shanghai this is one of the most shocking statistics from that book was that the uh the average uh, woman is having 1.2 children and so the demographic collapse of china is baked in it's just completely yeah. baked in So it's going to be interesting to see how how that uh, how that develops. I completely agree with you. The anti-human message that can be that can be uh, portrayed um, and and pushed and has very, very effectively, um, particularly over the last uh, 20 or 30 years is it has resulted in, in the manifestation of a, a very pathological way of looking at the world. And and uh I, I agree I agree completely with that. And um yeah, it, the, the love for our, our ourselves and our own human and our and our and our humankind and humankind should certainly um uh be be foremost uh as as far as I can uh, sorry that's not a very exact sentence but but um the sentiment may be translated
2: a lot of people are talking about like you know a, a new kind of mm, culture or um Matthias Desmet who who wrote um uh, what what's the um totalitarianism a new book on totalitarianism uh w- warning um about oh mass formation is the name of of his his book and at the end of it he says something about well the reason why we've um been able to be you know kind of hypnotized by the propaganda and our you know doing things that are bad for ourselves we're we're on a self-destructive course um you know allowing us ourselves to be locked down and you know um do things that harm us um you know destroying uh Uh, cattle that that couldn't make it to the um, because the the slaughterhouses were closed things like that they just you know very very destructive um, uh, thing measures that were taken he says that that is all due to the the mechanized um, philosophy that that science is that we've had since Descartes time um, where you have you know thinking about the spiritual world is Not something that you can do scientifically, you know, so that whole, you know, whole area aspect of our being, um, emotional, subjective experiences can't be um, analyzed by science. And then the material world can completely be analyzed and reduced to science. So both of those positions are really wrong. From, from my point of view, from the, my philosophy in biosemiotics, is that the material world is not strictly material that you have relationships between things that can't be quantified. And so elude scientific descriptions. And that's why with you know, chaos and complexity science, they realize that um, um, complex systems are inherently unpredictable like the weather, you can't predict it after five days. There are too many things. It's not, it's not just that you need more information and you know faster computers or whatever. No, it's inherently unpredictable because of the way things um, relate to each other. And so that was the area of science that I wanted to explore more and, and, and um, understand more. I was studying um, complex system science at Santa Fe Institute. And then I went into this field of bio um, semiotics. And so it's a, it's a philosophy that, that doesn't allow that, um, that breach between what we now call the spiritual and the material. It allows us to think in a more holistic way about um, nature um, to understand that we're not going to control it completely. And uh, y- you know you want to you want to disarm all those people um, who think that they can predict and control nature, and they can come up with these schemes for d- demographics, and they can tell everybody this is the perfect number of children that you're going to have, and this is you know there aren't going to be any unforeseen consequences <laughs> of this rule applied to everyone, and 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 everyone has to use uh, the synthetic nitrogen now, and you know. Uh, um, there are too many people in science who think that if they just study harder, if they get more data, they can at last figure out how to control this situation. And complex system science and chaos theory tells us no.
1: Yeah, well, so, that would- so, well, so, you know, Since this is uh, ostensibly a ranching uh, podcast. You know, the, the one thing, uh, one of the things that, one of the, 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 the lines that cuts through both my experience and Brian's experience is a communing with the, with the sort of spontaneous and decentralized intelligence of a landscape. And that, I think, ties very strongly to, to what you're talking about. When, when we go out and interact with the landscape, you know, certainly... Here's, 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 a, here's an example. People will ask me, how, how is it that your grass is growing? When, you're, when, when my grass is not growing, nobody else's grass is growing around here. But, my, but your grass is growing. And, and they want some sort of answer of, well, the, the mechanism of the hooves allows for greater water infiltration and greater air exchange, which is true. Or, or it has a greater rest time, so it allows itself to build this root system, which is true. But I think there is an equally important aspect that goes to what you're talking about, which is it's because the land is intelligent and it knows that it's being treated properly now. And it knows that it's being given, it, it knows that he or she who holds much power over it is trying to put things in order in a way that allows it to thrive and survive. And there's an intangible and a difficult to define element there that that becomes manifest. And what it looks like is the grass is growing.
2: Would you say that this soil bacteria is providing some of that intelligence and that response to um, your animal activity?
1: Yeah. And the, and the, the, uh, fungi as well. My mother refers to it as the fungal underweb. <laughs> so yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, as you, as you guys were talking in your previous podcast, that, that there's, you know, there, the, the brain is just a bunch of individual cells. You know, the brain doesn't have a bunch of brains. You know, I think that the land is just a bunch of individual, um, pieces that create a, a cohesive and eruptive intelligence.
2: Um, do you know you know the Gaia hypothesis of how we uh, came to have a climate that's balanced and always maintains itself at a at a temperature and a chemical equilibrium that is conducive to life. Um, that was uh, a theory uh, that was it, and, and the the idea is that the the climate balances itself in a way that is intelligent. And so in, in a sense, there's planetary cognition. A friend of mine named Bruce Clark was a, a astrobiology chair at the US, I'm getting his uh, uh, title wrong, at the US Library of Congress. Uh, anyway, the, uh, uh, James Lovelock died a couple of days ago. He was one of the authors of that theory along with Lynn Margulies. Lynn Margulies was a friend of mine. Uh, uh, she was, you probably know she was married to uh, Carl Sagan. Okay. Dorian Sagan and Lynn Margulis have written quite a few books. And they talk about this, they, you know, they really do describe how these, you know, this whole planetary ecosystem has a kind of intelligence because of all the responses that every microbe, every, uh, the fungus, the, the bacteria, the animals, the plants are all constantly adjusting to each other. And, um, uh, in, you know, how, how can you possibly come up with a top-down rule for if, if this, then that, if this, then this, because you have all, the, all these, intel, you know, individually intelligent beings um, simultaneously ad- adapting to the situation on the fly. You can't design that. You have to rely on the intelligence of every individual player in the soil on the land, so that that's why your pasture is more intelligent than the other pastures. That's why it's more green.
1: Certainly, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I completely agree. Do you do you think, um, and Brian, I'll, I'll let you maybe answer some of this as well. But do do you think that there's any. Uh, Truth to the idea that the bigger players, the more what they might refer to as the keystone species in an ecology or basically anything with the bigger that puts out a bigger uh, uh, poop uh, has the ability to really start moving that forward or changing that. Do you you think your sheep have the ability to move the ecology around faster, bigger, better, stronger than, say, making a than, say, a, a bacteria?
0: I think there's something with concentration of animals. I think there's something with herd effect, concentration of energy, concentration of animals, of of the hooves, and not so much a weight thing or 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 duration, but just having those individual beings, those individual animals in a place for a time. I I think that there's... I think that has some kind of energy effect and it has less of an effect if it's spread out over a whole for a longer duration.
2: And you guys are much more methodical than, than I am. I'm, uh, you know, very you know, trial and error. I, I know that in the 10 or 12 years that I've had sheep, they're, they're shaping the land very slowly. Uh, it's changing very slowly. You know, some, uh shrubs have disappeared in an area and uh and um uh oregano has disappeared in another place and just things are, are changing all the time but um it's it's greener um than it was it used to be a cornfield uh many years ago probably 30 years ago and i think the the soil was stripped um
0: I, I almost take offense to you calling me methodical because <laughs> to, to some extent, everything's experimental and.
2: You have to write down some numbers at least. And yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. I, I, legal pads. I probably go through about <laughs> a half a box of legal pads every year. They're just literally everywhere. Um, there was something else that you'd said. Maybe I'll, I'll circle back.
2: And, but Hobbs, I, I like what you said, that example that you came up with, with, you know, talking about the, the soil being intelligent. It is. And and we need that. That was basically the thesis of this paper that um, I sent to Brian and we started talking about is, um, you know, this, the, the, you know, people who think that they can control nature with, uh, you know, mechanized farming don't realize how intelligent nature is that, and, and they don't realize also the nature of our own intelligence. They think that our prefrontal cortex, the executive function is making all our decisions. Um, you know, just in it's the same metaphor who thinks that the the, the boss, the, the the CEO of a company is running it. You know, how absurd is that? You know. <laughs> Um, you, you know the the what what we call our consciousness and our the executive function of our brain is really kind of um, the part of the brain that's observing all the decisions that are being made by the subconscious, and then can reflect on that and can realize oh you know oh I've made this decision because I you know was comparing this or comparing that, and then in that consciousness of the way. Uh, decisions are made can then feedback in the subconscious can do more with that and make further decisions. Um, But, you know, decisions are being made intelligence is an emergent phenomenon um, that's happening. um, You know, just as the different um, entities in your pasture are all contributing to this intelligence, uh, and there is no intelligence in one specific place. Um, you know, together they are intelligent. The, the, the mind also emerges out of all these mindless neurons, you know, so you can't place where it is that these decisions are being made. It's, it's this ongoing reciprocity, simultaneity between, you know, all, all the different things that are making little tiny local decisions all the time based on their, their states, of so their neighbors around them.
1: Yeah, I, I've learned um, over many years, uh, with, with, particularly with grazing, and maybe Brian can speak to this as well, that I spend, well, let me back up a little bit. One of the things that I hear about my granddad, who was a ranch manager back in the day, and who was sort of a crazy semi-zen person in, in his own right, is that, he, is that he would just sit with one foot up on the bottom rung of a barbed wire fence and just look and just look out and the the more and more that I begin to practice this high density grazing this eco grazing whatever you want to call it the more I realize that I stand in a pasture and just look and 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 I don't try to figure out the answer to how what is the way to properly graze this pasture I just hold open a space and then it arrives and it's what it's what we, we kind of taken to calling architect mode you know and it's uh it's just sort of allowing that and it's it's like you know shutting off the prefrontal cortex and allowing you know allowing the back end to you know render in a way and put and, in and, and you know potentially maybe there's some some interconnection with the landscape that's happening there as well. Like, like I want to be grazed this way. I need the cows over here. I want to do this and put in, you know, it's, and there's no telling how deep that can go. And, um, uh, Brian,
0: I, I call it, I just go out and I listen to the grass. I mean, it's, 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 sometimes I have to go out and sit on top of a hill for an hour before I understand it. Sometimes I just have to go walk around, you know, through 20 or 30 acres in a corner of the pasture, just see, look what's going on. And I, I guess, I guess you could say I'm creating a space and opening it and letting, letting the, the intelligence come to me for lack of a better term.
2: We, uh, we take in a lot of uh, information in our subconscious that we're not aware of, you know, we're picking up a lot of patterns when we look around and we hear things and we smell things uh, that we're that we're not processing consciously and um, I I think you're both talking about the process of discovering that artists often talk about. You know you're sort of musing and you're just taking in information and you're not trying to analyze it yet you're just taking it in and then it's sort of the the information sort of self-organizes literally in your subconscious and and then you and then you realize what the solution is it comes to you like an epiphany um that's you know Stereotypical artist, you know, way of, of doing things, but of course that's that's everybody who's really in touch with, uh, you know, a, a complex problem, um, and and so if if everyone's like that, you know, every 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 node in your ecosystem is made up of of individuals who are listening really hard and paying attention, everybody will work really well together <laughs> or better. <laughs>
1: There's one, there's one thing that, that occurred to me in, in, this, uh, in, in listening to your previous uh, podcast with Brian, and it was that you being a philosopher who writes papers and the title of your last paper being Free Range Humans, and maybe it is because I grew up in the ranch culture, eh, the American West ranch culture, that I think, and I would love to see you spend some time on some big ranches across the American West and seeing if that, if there's an interesting seed of what uh, uh, an almost sort of cultural or philosophical seed of free range American Western culture uh, that that's out there. Cause I've always felt, and once again, I'm, I'm probably very, very biased that I mean, it's an interesting structure, right? You have ranches, which are little kingdoms and, then you have these these people who are sort of running it and organizing it and who've created kind of a city. And they're basic ranchers are basically just public administrators um, for a city of of cattle and the subsequent ecosystem that's that's around it. And th- that has that has produced a particularly independent variety of human.
0: You know, I've uh, I've had almost that exact same analogy in my head before, Hobbes.
1: Oh, interesting. So anyway, that was just a thought that 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 occurred to me today that I that I wanted, I would love to read your observations of after having read uh, your 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 paper on uh biosemiotics I, I would be I would love to read your observations of what you know, what a crusty old how a crusty old rancher looks like a free range human or doesn't, you know. Uh,
2: the American cowboy. Uh, a, a mythical being to people in in Europe and in Russia. And um, well, I was in Russia during the lockdown and people said to me that they were just flabbergasted that the American cowboy was allowing all these things to be done to them and to <laughs> their freedoms to be restricted. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, the American cowboy, the it, it, the American, I, a, a lot of the reading that I have done is uh, with the, uh, the transcendentalists of uh, in in terms of this American self reliance and so forth is is from Emerson and through and Thoreau Ther- and uh, C. S. Peirce, you know that that group of thinkers. But I grew up in Dallas, Texas, so. <laughs> You know that's my original conception of uh, the independent American, and and writing the writing the paper, I thought of myself as I hadn't really before as kind of a governor of my farm, and that I could see that you know in relationship to my my sheep, I I am treating my my animals like. Um, politicians and leaders want to treat the people, you know, kind of domesticate them and and so forth. And so in a way, I was kind of coming to terms with that. How can I be that best governor? I don't want to just let my sheep out. (laughs) I don't want to turn them loose and, and make them fend for themselves in the winter. I want to provide for them. I want to protect them. I want to provide some security for them. But how can I do that without taking away their independent their independence and their own free will. Um, so I, you know, I tried to be, um, you know, paint a picture of myself as the best kind of governor for a little tiny farm as, as kind of a model for, for a political organization. And, and so if I were to come out and look at um, big ranches and, and think about the American cowboy Um, yeah, no, that would be, that would be a bigger picture, and it's a bigger operation, but that's what you, what we all have to do, you know, we look at our own household, and we also want to, want to run our household as, as parents, you know, don't treat your kid, your kids like they're, you know, don't lock them up in a cage and tell them what to do, give them some, some responsibility and some freedom, you know, and so we have to, you know, get larger and larger, and so you take a, you know, the model that I created on my little five acre farm, you know, how does that apply to a farm with thousands of acres? Um, Interesting.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that is sort of the uh, prevailing debate in the so-called regenerative world is what is the proper political and ecological orientation of the operation such that, the animals, the people, and the ecology are properly provided for and, and and create the best outcome over the longest time horizon. You know, that's, you know, and I think there there is, the, the bigger your operation gets, the more difficult that becomes until you get to be the size of, you know, the planet. So.
2: <laughs> well, the bigger you get, you have to be made up of a lot of smaller um, entities that are doing the same kind of thing, um, you, you know, it can't be can't be like a hierarchy where there's just one person at the top, you know, you know, giving the orders. Um, a, a big ranch has to be made up of a lot of little ranches, I guess, you know, little mini herds, and you know, uh, who who have equal equal control over their um, own little um, territory. Um, so I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know how, how that, how you, um, how you do something like that with a big ranch. If you can think of it as, as having a lot of small ranches and, and smaller projects within the larger one.
1: Sure. They call they call them camps
0: Yeah, <laughs> or, or division.
1: Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's certainly, obviously it definitely fractalizes as it goes up or down. Yeah. Um, yeah and you know certainly that's, that's that's important but anyway i i just think uh i, I think this is I've, I've been really this has been really lovely to uh just sort of the the central theme of self-organizing intelligence is just i think i mean maybe that's when we keep looking for a road map or we keep looking for what is it going to look like it's going to look like you know and that's why one of the what as this as this old order sort of withers and gives rise to a new one it's just simply, you know, we have to trust that intelligence self-organizes and um, which is why you know, in our previous conversations, Brian and I always kind of come up with, you know, yes, save seeds, et cetera, but also form relationships with your community. Like that's, that's the real long-term investment, I think, in terms of creating a sustainable future.
2: And I want to say something, too, about uh, the the paradigm of Darwinian selection, as as you know, uh, weeding out the unfit and, you know, creating, you know, an environment where you have the most fit. You said a moment ago, you know, looking for the best way to do things. Um, We can only look for one of one of the best ways to do something. There are many best ways and there are many okay ways, you know, there are many ways that are good enough for the moment. And so I think it's important that we, um, you know, don't don't try to optimize anything ever. Nature actually doesn't do that. And I, I, you know, even natural selection tends to select for adaptability often than the best fit to a particular environment because um, most organisms need to adapt. That's the best, you know, the fittest thing you can be is adaptable. Um, So, there's, you know, uh, the, the idea of competition too is, selection is good in a way in that it tends to, um, uh, it, it, it tends to eliminate the things that are, uh, you know, kind of bringing a, a, a herd down, um, uh, you know, and it, but, but it doesn't, it doesn't create anything new natural selection has no creative powers. It can only narrow options. It can only select away the things that are particularly detrimental. Um, and so self-organization is the other countering force to natural selection. Self-organization is the force that that creates new um, new, you know, cooperative to, um, entities, new relationships between things that had this synergistic effect. Um, and in, in nature, when, when you get the most evolution is when you don't have any selection acting at all and there are enough resources available for all animals to survive even if they're not particularly fit, you know it's just so easy to gather food that in in you know there's very few predators. In those kinds of conditions, you get a great amount of diversity, um, and uh, you know so you you know there's a lot of speciation events, um, just a lot of variety when selection is not acting.
1: Inevitably, that's partnered with a pruning period.
2: And then it's partnered with a pruning period, yeah. So, you know, you have these, this relationship going on all the time. So, you know, too much of our uh, philosophy in economics and in business and and in, in evolutionary theory is uh, focused on natural selection and what it does. But self-organization is equally important. That's, that's it.
1: It's, it seems like it's much perhaps that's because it's much easier to articulate as a result of the uh, the Descartes scientific materialist world that we have all sort of evolved in and, and the language of self organization and intelligent and spontaneous spontaneously manifesting intelligence is, is very difficult for us to articulate.
2: Yeah, and it starts to sound to people like we're, you know, not being scientific anymore because we're talking about the intelligence of the soil and, you know, things like that. But um, that, that's just because we we have a really pared down science, scientific approach that is is not very good about, about understanding the relationships between things. It's very good at sort of digitizing everything and thinking about discrete things um, and thinking about... Things that can be counted, um, but you know, relationships are—it's harder to quantify them. So, so and, our, and, our language needs to catch up to uh, a new understanding of how the world works. I think.
1: I think that it, to some degree, and I, and I apologize for for uh, the, the generality of this of this statement, but I I, I can't not say it. And, and to some degree, that is, I think the tension between the scientific materialists and the people who want to talk about god you know that that spontaneous arising of intelligence i think maybe there's something particularly in 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 regardless of what religion you are there's a seed of something in inside of people that they want to talk about that intelligence they want to talk about that spontaneous arising that 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 sort of non-darwinian element of existence, and the best that the best that we've been able to do as a result of our linguistic training is to just say God.
2: Yeah, yeah. I I am I am not um, a religious person at all, but um, people who are religious quite often use my work in biosemiotics because I try to scientifically discuss these things that you're not supposed to be able to discuss, these things that we often call spiritual or, or uh, immaterial. Um, and he, I, I was trying to bring this up when I was talking about Matthias Desmond before, where he, he felt like, you know, and he said that the reason why we have these problems is that people have gotten away from a kind of spiritual way of, of viewing the world. And, and I, I, would, uh, I would agree I would just call that spiritual uh, way of understanding the world a semiotic one. I think that there these the processes that we that create these, you know, almost supernatural spiritual processes are semiotic processes, and that we can understand them in that way. And um, so maybe that's just new language to describe a spiritual process. Um, There are a number of authors who have taken what I've written and then, and they say, see, this is the the kinds of, you know, this is like a divine process when you talk about emergence this way. And I'm perfectly happy with that. Um, if, If that's a way to get this kind of spiritualism back in the discussion, back in our culture, um, because not everybody is going to, not everybody is religious. Um, uh, and, and people will criticize, you know, spiritual readings of agriculture. <laughs> if you're not Wendell Berry or <laughs> something. Um, and so I, I want to provide the language that can help everybody come back to you know, reconnecting with what we call the spiritual. Um, Yeah, and I'm doing that in, I think I may have mentioned that to Brian before that I'm doing that in my fiction too. I've got a collection of short stories called Chance That Mimics Choice. And, uh, you know, Wordsworth had all this, you know, nature poetry uh, trying to Articulate the spiritual in nature and you know that fell out of fashion with the postmodernism and with you know the, the mechanistic view of the world just won't read Wordsworth anymore. Well, I, I, I've been writing um, narratives that try to bring back that sense of I don't call it the spiritual I call it the semiotic but basically i'm looking at the same phenomenon i'm trying to describe the same phenomenon in our connectedness with the natural
0: world. Okay. So I thought of something I was going to say earlier, and this does kind of tie in, you were talking about how the changes you've seen on your farm have taken a long time, 10 years. And it's just, you, you know, you, I think it was specifically, you were talking about the sheep since the sheep and some of the brush was starting to kind of disappear and change shape. And I've, I've seen this myself So I've been here, you know, on the ranch every day for like 15, 16 years now. When a natural system changes, it changes very slowly. And I found that any rapid change is generally not for the better. So rapid change would G, would be, something like, you know, a new species coming in to colonize. Which, you know, that, that's a whole other argument. And I've been kind of sitting here mulling this over for the last, oh, half hour or so about the timescale of intelligence. Does a smaller intelligence express itself in a shorter time scale? And does a larger intelligence take a longer timescale to, to express itself. So I think some of the conversation was about, you know, the planet, the soil kind of having an interconnected intelligence. Do we just not exist on a long enough time scale to understand it? Evidenced by, you know, seeing just a relatively what we would think of as a relatively minor change on a landscape over 10 years?
2: Um, I I would guess that. Um, Our lifespans are are about right for us to uh, develop a very intelligent um, homestead. Um, I think it'll take a lot longer for uh, the country to become intelligent, you know, the the United States of America to develop some intelligence. That'll take a very long time. We'll have to all get our homesteads (laughs) thinking more intelligently first. But, um, but, I, but I like that you brought that up, that the, you know, intelligence does work. Um, I mean, sometimes intelligence can, can rapidly uh, um, discover new things that, um, you know, in the, the way the human brain works, we can have these epiphanies that are very sudden and we can learn things instantly without a lot of trial and error and without a lot of training. And that's only through our kind of uh, specifically organic intelligence that we have, where we have all these things simultaneously uh, feeding into the process all the time. Um, so only this kind of organic intelligence is, is capable of the, those epiphanies, those insights that immediately solve many, many problems. So, so maybe that, that is something, may, maybe we can get out of this mess sooner than, than later if, if, we, if, if we let these epiphanies emerge and, and all of us are more connected to, to our lives and what we do, but definitely, you know, in terms of uh, uh, slogans for how to look at the future, you know, not sustainable growth or anything like that, but slow, you know, we, we you know, the, the worst thing I think for all of us has been throwing a lot of money into the economy at different periods of time and you get this rapid development on anything that that's why you know the the monetary uh, system is the first thing that needs to be changed Um, very very careful how quickly we build new structures we have to think about them first and live with it and see how it works and
1: Right. Yeah. So that's why, you know, Joel Salatin says, if you put a temporary fence in a place and it works for three years, then build a permanent one.
0: Or just leave it there and don't ever pick it up. Then it becomes a temporarily permanent fence. (laughs) That that sounds like something I might do. Um, So we're talking about, you know, the currency and devaluation. A note I made earlier and something I've been kind of thinking about is, you know, when we're doing this paper to digital transition, and you know, primarily the focus that we that that we've kind of been discussing, and you know, some other people I've been discussing from this frame of mine is you know the central bank digital currency or central controlled digital currency, similar to what they have in China. And if you hear a government talk about it, they say, "Oh, it's nothing like what they have in China," but I have a it's feeling exactly it's going to be
2: exactly
0: the same thing. So if they're going to tie, if they're going to put everything on the digital register, tie our personal records to, you know, digital banking account to a social credit score to how much, you know, fiat dollars you have in the bank, are they going to do the same to property and asset records? Are they going to be digitized on some sort of blockchain? And the reason I'm asking is because that's not really done, even though they, you know, we've been trying to digitize all the paper records since what, like 1986, you know, the federal government's been trying to go paperless, and it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> so like abstracts and, and, and certificates of title, you know, here where I'm at, we go back to 1883 at the earliest 1882 ish, for land grant, I can only imagine what it's like to get like a title opinion on your property, Tori. Like I can imagine that that's probably a pretty obscenely thick document. So what, are they going to take all the property records and tie them to a digital record? Like, uh, like some kind of, I don't know, NFT, non-fungible token?
2: Well, and- well, yeah, maybe, or, they're, or they're, you're just going to own nothing. That'll simplify things quite a bit.
1: The amount of energy that it takes to to run, say, even like Facebook's servers or Apple's servers is is completely to use a word that you're talking about earlier, non-sustainable. It's just not going to happen. It's just they're the not not to mention the energy, but also the water is just not going to be available to keep all of those records going and cool and accessible, and everybody getting a hold of them on their iPhones. I mean, it's just. The, the, I, I just don't think that that and system that. can hold itself up.
2: Yeah, it's it's the blockchain is very energy intensive. So I mean, I think that needs to be our response when they say, "Oh, we've got this, you know, great new digital, you know." Uh, no, it's not sustainable. It's too energy intensive. No, absolutely not.
0: And just just sitting here thinking about it, you know, there's going to be. There's can, there could be a time in the future where property boundaries aren't necessarily legally enforceable because there's not a method, there's not a there's not a functioning legal system to enforce them.
1: Smith and Wesson. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, and so something else I've been thinking about. Like, all my it was actually on my list that we started with was what, if any, sorts of government are going to survive into the post-order world? I mean, none of them are going to make it through intact. And there's something new going to be born. And with every birth, there's always blood. The question is, I guess maybe, and nobody's going to know, but how long do we think the current system is going to kind of keep creaking along? And are they going to try to build something different before it breaks? Or how, how do we see the break happening? Tori, I'd like you to go first.
2: Well, I, the one thing that I would hope survives is our basic constitution, which I think in its simplicity was pretty well designed with enumerating the rights of the individuals um, being the most important thing and not the rights of, of the government to do things to you. Um, may, maybe the one thing is, is how uh, they envisioned uh, the system of checks and balances with the with the legislators, the executive branch, and the judicial branch. It hasn't really worked out in terms of the checks and balances that they imagined because each of those branches just assumed too much power. Um, I think one of, one of the ways to uh, fix that might be to, to not really give legislators any laws to create. You know, we have 650 new laws or uh, new bills voted on every year. We're like, making a
0: much higher bar to get one passed and much easier to get one repealed.
2: Yeah, you know, I mean, it, what, what are some of your favorite acts that you would like to see continued?
0: There aren't any. <laughs> there really aren't any. Everyone. I, one I of mean, one.
2: we can talk about some, you know, like Social Security. It's really nice that you know people can retire and they know they're going to have a little bit of income. But, but then there's that. There's always unintended consequences. Now families don't take care of their um, parents. You know, they. You know, so you lose that intergenerational um, feedback that was super important for families. So. Yep. Uh, you know, uh, what, so part of your question was, what do you think will survive the collapse? I hope the post office will survive. It's it's the one, you know, it's it's the one, um, you know, libertarians always talk about how much they hate the post office. I like the post office.
0: <laughs> I don't mind the post it's office. The one,
2: um, no, I mean, it's necessary for a democracy that you have communication system right? And it, 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 is, it does pay for itself in that nobody pays taxes to maintain the post office. You just pay if you, if you use it. And, and so that's a much better uh, uh, model for a, any kind of government service is if you need it, you pay for it instead of being taxed.
1: Isn't that kind of the overall thesis of uh, Kevin Costner's movie, The Postman? in a post-apocalyptic uh, in America, he's, he, you know, he...
2: like the Pony express. The right. Movie, right. Right. I didn't see that movie, but well, yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't know. So, so my answer is basic infrastructure. Uh, that's what I would like to see, you know, some sort of uh, communication lines survive and um, transportation lines um roads people maintaining roads
0: um, i want to scream but my roads who will build the roads
2: <laughs> so I, I didn't get to finish my sentence before with the fiat money it can, it can't be debt backed debt backed currency doesn't work but if you only create greenbacks because that's what we had before in Lincoln's time you create greenbacks only to build and maintain public infrastructure. And for no other reason, not for war, not for welfare, not to pay politicians salaries or regulators or anything. You can only create currency to build public infrastructure. That way you don't have to tax to do it. That way you don't have to borrow to do it. And then once you build that public infrastructure, you could charge reasonable user fees to use the infrastructure. And then we don't need to tax.
1: So, uh, would another way to say that be the only way to distribute created money into the greater population is through building infrastructure for the public?
2: Right. And then, and then the local um, regions could oversee that infrastructure project. You know, the you know the, the complete budget is published online. Everybody can look at it and see whether or not the money is being spent. And civil engineers should do the the constructing, not a third-party corporation who's going to take some profit off the top of it. We eliminate that. Just, you know, hire good workers and fire them if they're not good.
0: In that scenario, though, what incentive do the workers have to do a good job for a low cost?
2: Uh, Okay, let me,
0: I guess I could. There's, when... When I'm hiring something done, I want, you know, the right person for the right job, the right price. When a contractor is going out they're you know, they're concerned with other performance metrics. When the government's doing it, they just want the lowest cost and they're not measuring any outcomes. So how, how does that translate to a verified outcome system?
2: Well, I think it might be a mistake to always try to keep the cost low. And you're going to do that if you have to tax people to build public infrastructure. And you're going to try to keep the cost low if you're going to have to borrow money. But if, you're, if you can create that money to do it, then you can think about the long term. Um, you can build the best uh, that money can buy um, that's going to last you know, hundreds of years instead of just 30 years. Um, you know, money isn't really an, an object in a way you're, you're, you're going to pay for the best workers. Um, and, and so, I mean, yeah, you don't want to, you know, overdo it or whatever, within reason. But when you can create the money for the infrastructure, you can, you can build the best and you don't have to cut corners you don't have to uh, penny pinch and um as far as the worker the worker is going to be motivated to do a good job because they'll get fired if they don't do a good job for that you know for a reasonable salary
1: um, just to some degree that's i kind of think that's well to some degree that's kind of what china has done right china's uh China's debt uh, to, uh, to GDP ratio has cre- increased by 800 percent over the last decade, right? So they they have used they've said, well, we have a printing press, uh, we can keep everybody happy by using our printing press, and so ultimately they have been able to assuage any political frustrations from the populace by making sure that there's enough money moving around, and so sadly now they have you know a, a ton of infrastructure projects that that nobody. Needs or wants, and so then the question, and we we saw that almost blow up this year with uh, what was that company? I'm having a hard time remembering. Um, but uh, but how do you how do you govern that? How do how do you how do you put a governor on that? How do you put a quality assurance team? You know.
2: Yeah. So yeah, the the uh, the worst thing that could happen with uh, you know greenbacks for infrastructure is that you'll have a lot of bridges to nowhere. Or like you have in China where they built these smart cities and nobody lives in them. Um, yeah, yeah, that's a real problem in China. So uh, if, you know, Ellen Brown with Public in- Public Banking Institute said that, you know, the creation of money could be based on per capita, you know, how many, you know, so that there's some sort of natural limit that you can't go beyond, so that you have like a budget ceiling or whatever and it's based on the number of people um, uh, I, I am not an economist, so I can't think further, think that through further, but I think Ellen Brown would be able to come up with a very good answer for that. And, and you know going to you know where's the quality control? If this region or the state or the city or this town gets allotted a certain amount of money per capita for infrastructure project, maybe the people um, will be more interested to keep an eye on it and say, you know, we, we don't want to spend more than that for this project because we have these other three projects that we also want to do. So there, there would be a participatory budget um, discussion among the people. And, and if that's what we had to spend our time on, you know, managing, you know, how, how our local governments spent the infrastructure money that they got from the federal government or from the treasury then we then we could you know use our time um, talking about those things, and we wouldn't be bothered with uh, talking about politicians' personalities all day. And you know,
1: have you read any uh, Gail Tverberg? Have you ever read any, any of her
2: work? Um, I'm sorry, I just got a, a message from my husband that says the canner is on, and I forgot I'm canning food. Oh, okay. Then on here. Uh, so let me just do a quick calculation spin on about hour and a half yeah could you turn it off now thank you
1: <laughs> perfect <laughs> all right yeah you gotta make you know this is that's that's the uh, the theme of this whole conversation is you got to make sure that the canning is right you know <laughs> you can't you can't even talk about government if you don't have anything to eat so you got to make sure that the cans are proper are properly oriented yeah, yeah. so have you read any gail fairberg No, she's a she's a retired insurance actuary who writes on the nexus between energy and finance. And her her basic idea is that um, that global GDP has tracked right alongside of of energy availability. So to some. so, So one of the things that that occurred to me while I was thinking about this is that people don't have time to participate in a meaningful way in their in the intimate details of their life because our system is set up so that they must go out and chase debt created dollars and if gdp is 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 directly correlated to a rise in energy availability they are actually outgoing and and trying to find a place in the energy pipeline to 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 capture those resources and deploy them in a way that will bring them more debt back dollars so they can continue, continue doing this for, I'll give you, I'll give you a, a, a solid example. And the solid example is that people ask me, why do you, how do you have time to move your cows four times a day? How do you have time to do that? And the answer is because I'm not on a tractor. You know, so I have, I have the ability to, Engage with the intimate details of the management of my property more because I don't have to spend time because I've arranged the system so I don't have to spend as much time burning fossil fuels in the pursuit of dollars, um, as as the most people in our economy are sort of trapped doing.
2: Yeah, I think some people will say the same thing to me. How do you have the time to can all those vegetables? Um, I mean, I, I almost worked full-time at it for about three months a year. I did, uh, uh, I do about seven quarts a day. Um, uh, s- s- yes, how do you have time? Well, you often, you know, I put this I put this cabbage here because I was going to chop it up for coleslaw while I was on this, uh, this call with you, usually I'm multitasking and I, and I'm, I guess I'm just so involved in the conversation. I'm not doing this work and normally I would be. Well,
1: that's a good sign.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but so, you know, so, yeah, I mean, a lot of the things that I think about what, what do I do here is, is what can I do without having to depend on the system outside for energy and I, also energy you know, for our entire economy um, to be so dependent upon the availability of energy. Let me just say, you know, that's a natural resource that was created millions of years ago and the people who are pulling it out did not create that they're using a finite resource that they are not responsible for creating. And so it really, I mean, I don't want to sound like a hippie or anything, but um, that really does natural, all finite natural resources do belong to the all people on earth or in the given country, let's say um, present and future. And so I, I don't think that for-profit companies should have access to those finite resources that really belong to the all the people on the land. And um, uh, I you know I I uh, I believe in ownership and capitalism and uh, you know entrepreneurship, but I don't believe in the private. Um, ownership of natural resources that you did not create. So, as as far as energy goes, I would rather see a. I would rather see all our um, oil fields nationalized. I mean, the the federal government owns a lot of these lands now anyway, and you know leases them out. And uh, y- you know, you could take the profit. Out of our energy use because these oil companies they they have a lot of profit you know they're siphoning off a lot of profit and if we could run an uh, an energy industry uh, as a as a nonprofit that's um, you know the the problem with you know government running something is they have this top down control and you have all this power up at the top. And they, they just like the for-profit oil companies will siphon money out of the system. So in order to run that properly, you would have to have, again, some sort of distributed management system where everybody is, um, you know, uh, has input on decision-making. You know, the people that are um, in the area where the pipeline is going to be going through, they have Input, You know, the people that own the land where there's fracking going on have input, and they would be much better regulators than a federal regulator. If you own the farm where the fracking is being done, you're going to be a much better regulator. Um,
0: I'm I'm probably going to be a much, much harsher critic on my place of a saltwater spill than the kansas corporation commission is i guarantee you <laughs> I'm a whole lot more upset about any saltwater spill than the kcc is well
1: i'm 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 sad to i'm sad to announce that i'm i'm uh probably need to go move some cows here shortly um but i did want to uh try to answer brian's question a little bit earlier in 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 the uh, i i i th- i think tori did a, f- a fabulous job uh Articulating what you hope survives, I think the post office and the Constitution are two really good ones. Um, and as what it what what it looks like, I think that if you sort of just. And this is sort of a sort of a gut analysis, but also looking at several inputs like interest rates and 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 uh, accompanying metrics, I think that we're going to see. Um, a convergence of real problems right around 2030 and I think right around 2030 we're going to have a a uh, massive crisis and i think we're going to have 10 hard years and or or so and then around 2040 we're going to start to see some self-organizing systems i think the first whatever sort of acute crisis rises well i think which i think there will be at some point an acute crisis um i think that that's going to happen somewhere right around 2030 Uh, we'll see um We'll see if there's a little prelude here in, in, in the, the 2024 election that may be sort of the beginning of the conversation. Um, but I think by the 2040s, things will have begun to settle out. That's sort of my best guess.
0: I've got a different start date. Tori, would you do you got anything?
2: Much sooner, much sooner. Let's take I, bets, huh? <laughs> I'm
0: 2026. Yeah. 2026. Yep. I'm in 2026.
1: Well, c- certainly it, it is, it is possible that COVID has moved things forward a little bit. Um, but I, I think that, I think that we still have some room to run with low interest rates um, that'll move us. Uh, that'll keep, that'll keep the the zombie moving a little bit farther down the line. Um, we'll see. I'll put a hundred dollars in
2: it depends on the weather i think you know if we if we have a terrible drought that continues or you know if something else like that that
1: well we're we're getting that right now that's for sure yeah and i don't see i don't see that ending any any time anytime soon we'll just we'll just have to see yeah. so you you very well may be right
2: we'll keep moving those cows
1: <laughs> i certainly will thank you brian for organizing this i very much appreciate it.
0: Hey, I've really enjoyed it. Uh, It's been kind of nice just being able to sit back and let the smart people in the room have a conversation and I can kind of absorb it. So I really appreciate that, um, guys. And, you know, listeners, I I hope you guys appreciate it too. Thanks, Um, guys. Good
2: talking to you. Good to talk
1: to you too. All right. Nice to meet you, Tori. Bye. All right, gang.
0: Have a great week.